Well, a um, couple of weeks ago, um, Andy Chevalier, our mighty kids worker he saw a moment ago, uh, really kicked us off proper, as it were, with our, um, our look through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And he, he took us through Genesis chapter 1, and if you were here, you'll remember that really he guided us away from too much controversy and distraction and made the very simple and yet profound point that the key to understanding chapter 1 of Genesis is that it's all about God. <laughs> it's all about one glorious God who is always worthy of our praise and our worship. And the climax of that chapter, the final five verses you remember, were that we, we heard about in day six, God creating the pinnacle of his creation, namely man and woman. And you'll be pleased to know that today we're going to pick up where he left off. We're going to spend the next few minutes looking at those five verses, but then also moving into Genesis chapter 2, which really unpacks in even more detail what God's heart is in terms of male and female. And I don't have to tell you that I think there are a few subjects on planet Earth that more people have opinions about and get people more emotional, both positively and negatively, than women and men in general. So hold on, friends. We are going to be... uh, having an interesting 40 minutes or so. And on a really serious note, I want us to say, and I just want to be honest, I'm not going to patronize you. You know, as Christians, if you're a Christian here today, the reality is, is that what we're about to read, just plain and simply, is different to what most people in this world think. Some people, Christians, might be tempted to try and twist it and distort it so that we all seem exactly the same. But guys, we are called aliens and strangers. And you know, James 4.4 says these serious words. It says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And what we're saying there at the beginning here is that we are called to be, which one are we called to be? Friends with God or, or, or enemies of God? Friends. That's what it's all about. And, you know, in our vision statement as a church, we say we want to be radical disciples. And this is where the rubber hits the road, friends, in one very controversial way. But I make no apologies for that. And I think in a church like ours, which is bursting with young uh, marrieds and newly engaged people left, right and centre... I thank God that we are looking at this issue here today because I believe that God's word is clear, it is glorious, it might be different to what the world thinks, but praise God that we're not here to just be friends with the world and just to allow the world's views on everything just to fill our minds. Actually, this is God's perfect word to us and we want to come under it. We want to come to it humbly and say, Lord, even if this is really different to what I thought I thought, Lord... Lord, I want, I, want to be, if you, I want to be courageous in my life. I want to live every area of my life under the wonderful, gentle, but real microscope of our Father in heaven. And so I'm, I think there are two, two points uh, that we see in these verses about the whole issue of how God sees man and woman that we're going to briefly look at. One, slightly quicker than the second one. The first one is very simply, is that we are equal. We are totally equal. But then secondly, we're going to spend a little bit more time on we're equal but different. (gasps) Here we go. So number one then, we are equal. Lord, help me. So the final five verses of chapter one, Andy uh, Andy sort of took us to 
two weeks ago, and there's a wonderful climax to this chapter. This is day six. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Creepy. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Hallelujah, I hear you cry. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Hallelujah. Page one of God's perfect word declares something just so important. That man and woman, woman and man, together, both, totally equal, are made equally in the image of God. Can I have an amen? Amen. Thank you. Well done. That's great. What does this mean to be in the image of God? It means that we are like God. It means that in contrast to every other earthly creature, in contrast to even the powerful angels of heaven, which we never read, are made in the image of God. Man and woman alone share the unique privilege, the privilege of privileges, to be declared, rubber-stamped, you are made in my image. To be made in the image of something, to be in the image of something, means you represent it. God is saying only man and woman fully represent who I am. I mean, that's, that's mind-blowing. To say that you, whether you feel wonderful or whether you feel rubbish, by virtue of being a human, if you're a human here, I think we're all humans here, no dogs or animals or anything, you uniquely represent God. I went to a boys' school, which was quite sort of serious and intense. And if you were, if you were there, you had to wear the uniform. And we were, it was just constantly rammed into us. If you wear the uniform, you are representing Stamford Boys School. And because I was a bit of a geek, I was like, yes, sir, no problem. So wherever I went, I proudly wore it. Hi, look at the emblem. I'm from the Stamford Boys School. And I represented the school. And that meant if I mucked up or I did something naughty, it wasn't just about me. It was, it was representing the school. And God says in a very much more positive way than that rubbish illustration, friends, Even if you have a rubbish image of yourself, God doesn't see that. He sees man and woman perfectly together, both co-equal in gloriously displaying the image of God. The heart of God has always been that man and woman should be treated with equal. Say equal. Equal. Dignity. Say dignity. And respect. Respect. Amen. (laughs) Amen. Oh, yeah. Nowhere does it will you find in Scripture... Nowhere does it say that man is made more in the image of of God than woman. And nowhere does it say that woman is made more in the image of God than man. It doesn't exist. And so what we have to say, on a serious note, that page one of God's word profoundly speaks against every single incident that has ever occurred in the world where this has ever been distorted. And particularly, we must say, in the places where the lie of male superiority has been believed. Wherever that has, thank you, wherever that has occurred, past, present, or in the future, page one of God's word says, this does not represent me. You are both male and female, together, wonderfully, co-equal in sharing the privilege of uniquely, as humans, bearing the image of God. 
Page one of God's Bible speaks against this. Wayne Grudem says this. Page one of the Bible states that wherever men are thought to be better than women, wherever husbands act as as selfish dictators, wherever wives are forbidden to have their own jobs outside the home, or to vote, or to own property, or to be educated, wherever women are treated as inferior, wherever there is abuse or violence against women, or rape, or female infanticide, or polygamy, or harems, the biblical truth of equality in the image of God is being denied. And to all societies where these terrible things occur, we must proclaim the very first page of God's word bears a fundamental and irrefutable witness against these evils. The reality is, although we live in a society where actually, I think in the last 40 years or so, the rise of aggressive feminism has meant actually, rather than saying so much that men and women are equal, actually I think in many ways it's almost now a situation in the West where often women are promoted as superior to men. You only have to watch The Simpsons. Who's the real head of the house? It's Marge, isn't it? You only have to watch an episode of Friends. And who is normally regarded as a bit more together and organised? It's the girls. The guys are the blunderous wallies that we love, but they're just a bit stupid. But without doubt, although that is true, the overwhelming trend of history across this world has been actually the other way round, that that this world has bought into the lie of male dominance and male superiority. And God's word, fundamentally, on page one, completely speaks against it. Wayne Grunham quotes himself reading... um, Uh, a magazine called USA Today, and an article in it which says this. It says, No girls allowed. Abortion for sex selection. In India, China, and much of Asia, due to strong cultural desire for boys, means that that there is now a booming business in sex selection, where this means that mums-to-be, pregnant women, will have an ultrascan. And if it's discovered that the the fetus is a girl, in 99% of cases, in the case he's talking about in India they will have an abortion. Why? Because it's a girl. And to do with the religions and the cultural emphasis in that part of the world, in India, China, and much of Asia, women completely wickedly are seen as inferior. And so they will have an abortion. It doesn't stop here, though, because even for those who make it through, often when the mum discovers that the, the little one that's born is a girl, they will often frequently allow them just to die. They'll just abandon them. Why? Because they're a girl. Absolutely unbelievable. And this means that in northern Africa and much of Asia, there is now major issues of sex ratio um, discrepancies and being lopsided. It's far, far more men, actually, than women. Amartya Sin, who who won a Nobel Prize, professor at Harvard and at Oxford, makes this incredible statement after studying this this phenomenon. He He says, now... Across the world, there are approximately 100 million women missing. There's 100 million women across this world missing. They never made it. Simply by virtue of being a woman. This is a horror of unspeakable proportions. The world in which we live. It's the lie that most of the world buys into and has bought into. And just think about even if you were a little girl who made it through. Just think of the uncalculable effects emotionally on you that you would have experienced growing up. All you would have heard is, I wish you were a boy. Boys are better than girls. 
and such like. Friends, we as Christians have to say, before we do anything else, we have to say, this cuts across the heart of God in an incredible way. And I want to say to you men, do not buy into the lie that you are superior, that the world often promotes. Women, do not buy into the lie that you are either inferior or superior. Page one of God's word says this is just totally against the heart of God. Male and female, he created them both uniquely in the image of God. It's an incredible, incredible truth. And as Christians, we must start here. Any, any investigation into the roles of men and women, particularly in marriage, must start fundamentally here. Must start here. Drawing a line in the sand, never to be reversed, settled for all eternity, that man and woman, male and female, both totally equal before God, despite what anything else in the world says. But we have to go on and say, as we look at chapter 2, God wants to, to bring to us, at the same time, a second and equal truth, that we are equal and yet different. And uh, I don't know if you're, you're like me, but when I first started thinking about this many, many years ago as a very young Christian, as soon as someone tried to say that phrase to me, equal but different, I kind of had a bit of a short circuit, and I was kind of like, well, surely, if you're different, then surely one is kind of better than the other. And the reality is, this, this idea, this understanding of us being equal and yet different, sometimes does cause us actually some problems. And yet the reality is, in the world in which we live, there are countless examples where we are equal with someone else and yet different. I just think of, for example, in the eldership, me and Gustav. Gustav and I are really different. Gustav is a man of attention to detail, a man of incredible godliness. No, no, we're both like godly, but you know. <laughs> He's an amazing guy, and we are different. But you are totally equal, totally equal, and we're different. And so I believe today God wants to break, actually, strongholds in our thinking. Because this is the point, is that can we be different and still equal? And I believe passionately we can. So I want to say here, before we jump into chapter 2... I want to say, listen, we're going to be reading chapter 2 now. That's before chapter 3. What happens in chapter 3? The fall. Some people have, I believe, wrongly said that difference in roles and responsibilities in male and female in the marriage uh, relationship are only a result of what went wrong in chapter 3 and the fall. And what we're about to read actually is in chapter 2, before the fall ever occurred. I want to say, if you're single here today, you might be thinking, well, Tom... Great, you're going to be talking about man and female relationships in marriage. I'm single, buddy. Shall I walk out now? I want to say, listen, all of us at one point in our life have been single. And for those of us who are married, one of us will end our life being single as well. I want to say as an eldership, we highly esteem being single. We absolutely see the dignity in being single. Paul and Jesus were both single. And in heaven, clearly, we are all single. Because we're all married only to one person, which is Jesus Christ. And that's why Psalm 73 is so wonderful, where the psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Whom do I have in heaven apart from you, Jesus? You're the true love of my life. I mean, I love you just to bits. But Jesus is even better. He is. In a different kind of way, you understand. Anyway... So let's just read then chapter 2 from verse 15. 
Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called them, called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I believe we see in here at very least four, four observations, four reasons why actually I believe God does see in the marriage relationship the man and woman as having different roles. There's at least four in here. There's several others, but we haven't got time to look at them. But I also then want to finish by briefly looking at two that we find in the New Testament that Paul makes. And together, cumulatively, I believe, make a good, strong case that actually this is the heart of God. So bear with me as we go through these, okay? They are meant to be viewed in almost as a package together rather than just in isolation. So, observation number one. The sheer existence of chapter two. What do I mean by that? to ask yourself, step back a bit, why does chapter 2 actually exist? Because chapter 1, you see, has built to this incredible climax. It's told us that God has made this thing called man and woman, these things, that they are the pinnacle of his creation. And yet what, therefore, do we find in chapter 2 is that God wants to tell us something that he hasn't told us in chapter 1. You see, God could have easily, after chapter 1, gone straight onto the fall in chapter 3. But he doesn't. He deliberately, as it were, he goes, whoa, 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 whoa. I know I've just described chapter, in chapter one, day six, where I made man a female. But I've said nothing about the timing of how they were made or how they were made. And I want to back up and I want to, as it, as it were, with a zoom lens, come right on in to this day. Why? Because I want to tell you something very important about the relationship of man and woman. I want to tell you something that I haven't told you in chapter 1. I want to tell you now in chapter 2. Okay? You've got the first point, the very important point, that man and woman are equal. You've got that from chapter 1. But now in chapter 2, I want to say to you this, that equality does not mean sameness. Equality does not mean a sameness. That we can be equal and yet different. It's amazing to think that Chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis are only the only two chapters out of a total of 1,184, I added them up, chapters in the entire Bible that describe man and woman without any contamination of sin. They're the only two chapters actually that in any way describe the relationship between man and woman before the fall. The rest of the book of the entire Bible in some way is dealing with God's redemptive work of a world that has been affected by sin. And so what we have to realize is, but particularly with chapter 2, this is a unique glimpse into the workers, into the, into, the, into the creator's workshop, as it were, before things got contaminated with sin. 
So first of all, then, I believe the sheer existence of chapter 2 is actually very significant. Number two, though, the order. That man is created first. Bear with me. You see, in verse 7 of chapter 2, it says, it's God, God has made Adam. Adam and Eve, sorry, Adam and God have then sort of hung out together, done various stuff. But God makes this declaration. He says, then God declares it's not good for man to be alone. And he then goes on, as we know, to cause Adam to fall into a sleep and to make out of his rib uh, a woman that he then uh, is known as Eve. We have to ask ourselves this, this question again. Why is it that God has included in his scriptures this detail about the man being made first before the woman? Is it significant? Is it significant? We probably, in the West, in this day and age, would probably naturally think, no, it doesn't necessarily mean anything, surely. And I would concur with that at an emotional, natural level. But there is one significant thing we cannot ignore, and it's this, that the Apostle Paul saw it as very significant that man was created first. Because in 1 Timothy 2.13, whilst Paul is explaining why he doesn't allow a woman to teach or have authority in the gathered context, he says this simple statement, for Adam was created first and then Eve. Paul, as it were, takes that truth and says it is significant. John Piper says this, he says, now why did God create man and woman in this way? Why did he not create them both simultaneously from the same lump of clay? Would that not have established their equality of personhood more clearly? Well, the answer is that he has already established that, beyond all doubt, in Genesis 1.27, both created in his image. Now, you see, God wants to create to say something more about the relationship of man and woman. And what he wants to say is that when it comes to their differing responsibilities in marriage, there is a firstness about the responsibility of man. This is not an issue of superior value. It is that God makes him the initial half of the pair to say something about his responsibility of initiative taking. God makes him lead the way into being to say something about his responsibility of leadership. So even if you are not convinced by that, the reality is I would say is this, is the Apostle Paul, led by the Holy Spirit in Holy Scripture, was led to conclude that the fact that Adam was created first was significant. And actually, if the Apostle Paul thinks something significant, well, if I call myself a Christian, that better be significant, because he's quite an important person. So first of all, then, we find the sheer existence of chapter 2 and the order is significant in terms of a difference in role between men and women in marriage. Thirdly, what I've called the interrogation. And what we find is, is that following on from uh, what we've just described in chapter 3 that Jeff Mao is going to look at next week, is that when things go wrong, when Eve and then Adam, but Eve, first of all, sins by choosing to eat an apple from from the tree that she shouldn't have done, the interesting thing is this, is who is it that God goes to to deal with its issue? You know the answer. He goes to the man. It says in chapter 3, verse 9, But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And the word you there in Hebrew is singular. It's not you as in a couple. He's saying, you, Adam, where are you? I know you've done something stupid as a couple, and I'm holding you responsible for it. It's a little bit like, a little bit like, if you've grown up with kids, or you're a parent. I remember as as a kid, I was the youngest, an older sister and an older brother, and quite often we'd get a bit out of control, and the lounge would sort of look like a World War III had broken out. And at some point, one of my parents would come in, and there'd be a moment of like, oh my goodness, 
And inevitably, what they would do is they'd say, Martin, what on earth has happened here? Martin being my older brother. Why did they ask Martin? Why didn't they say, Tom, you're the most crazy, you probably did it. No, no, no. They said, Martin, what's going on here? And the reality is, is that Martin, by virtue of his being the older, had actually had the responsibility of leadership in us with our mum and dad being away. And that's not a perfect illustration, I know. But it in some way illustrates something of what's happening here. Something's gone wrong, seriously, with Adam and Eve. And God says, Adam, where are you? I want to know what's happened. And the reality of this is this because we find in verse 16 of the chapter 2, this is important, God has given primary responsibility for the moral life of the Garden of Eden to Adam. In verse 16, it says, The Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it you shall surely die. Even before Eve was created, God gave Adam the primary moral responsibility for leadership of the Garden of Eden. And I want to say, my goodness, in the day and age in which we live, is this an important message? When you look around this nation, I'm sure we are all aware of the growing epidemic of teenage violence and crime and abuse and depression and suicides and pregnancies. Why? What is the cause? I want to humbly say I think the single biggest cause is the breakdown of family. I'm sure you probably agree with me, in large part. And what is the main contribution? What's the main guilty party in that? I want to say I don't think it's primarily the mums. They're not perfect, I'm sure. I think it's primarily the fathers. I'm not putting all the blame on the fathers, but I would say at a general level, the fact that generally so many men have abdicated their responsibility for guardianship of the moral state, as it were, of the garden, of their family, that God originally put in here, that actually it's meant that all around this nation we are reaping the fruit. The man is meant to be the one that sets the moral life for the family. That leads with a sacrificial, servant-hearted leadership. James Dobson, an American writer, puts it this way. A Christian man is obligated to lead his family to the best of his ability. If the family never reads the Bible or seldom goes to church on Sunday, God holds the man responsible. If the children are disrespectful and disobedient, then the primary responsibility does lie with the father. In my view, America's greatest need is for husbands to begin guiding their families rather than pouring every physical and emotional resource into the mere acquisition of money. I think that's profoundly true. Now, I just want to say here, if you're a man here and you're thinking, oh my goodness, I feel about this big. Don't allow condemnation to come here, all right? That's not God's heart. Okay? Resist that. But what I am saying is healthy conviction and a reminder of the nation that we're living in is absolutely appropriate. We had a a young marriage course recently that Josie and Hazel took about 12 uh, newly married women through, which is, I think, excellent from what I heard. And uh, Ollie Surgeon and me attempted to do the same with the husbands. I'm sure we did a good job. (coughs) And... um, but, you know, for me, one of the, just those things that just came up again and again with the guys, it's so simple, but was actually the issue of taking initiative. Is that I, Philippa Stroud, who's uh, running for, um, for, to be an MP, a mighty leader uh, of, a, of a, a lady uh, up in London, and she's married to Dave Stroud, who leads the church up there in London that we are connected with. And she was at a conference in the summer, and they were doing a seminar together. It was amazing. And she just said, you know, the key way that I feel loved by David and led by David, is that when we have, for example, some time off, 
is that David, even though he's exhausted and tired, and he, you know, there's a temptation just to say, well, you know, we can do whatever you want, love, you know, that old cop out. He often has attempted <laughs> to think creatively and to take initiative and to see that day as he's going he's gonna to think of something that will, his wife would really love. And he might not like that much, but he's going to do it because he wants to serve her. And he's going to take ownership and put energy into that. That's the way. And I found that very challenging. I hope some of you guys who are married also find that healthily challenging. Because here, actually, this is an echo. This is, this is something, the fact that actually when, when it all goes wrong with Adam and Eve, Adam is the one who's interrogated. Because he has been given the primary responsibility for leadership. But fourthly, we see here also what I've called the role as helper. Now, as soon as I say that word helper, I guarantee some of you women might feel a little bit angry. As soon as I ever say that word with Josie, she gets, (laughs) helper? How patronizing can you get? I said, thanks, my love, my helper. Just to wind her up. But actually... This, this is a disservice to the word. The original word in Hebrew is a mighty word. It's a mighty word. It's the word that's often used about God. <laughs> Do you realize that? It's often the word, the same Hebrew word that is used about God helping Israel out of a terrible calamity. And actually a better description probably is lifesaver. That sort of changes the feel a little bit, doesn't it? I hope you feel a little bit more He's, She was his lifesaver. Amen. And we have to think the activity of helping doesn't in any way necessarily mean inferiority. You can be, you can be I, could, I could help Daisy to, I don't know, put, stack some bricks or something. And in that situation, I, the helper, am actually the one in greater authority. Or I could help a neighbor to move a sofa from one place to another, and we're in equal authority. Or it could be that one day when Daisy's a bit older, I ask Daisy to come and help me clear out the shed. And in that situation, she would be the one with lesser authority. So even the activity of helping has nothing really to do with authority. Do you understand that? It's not to do with that. It's to do with the sovereign design of God that actually, not just on a one or two acts of occasional help, but by virtue of creation, that the woman created, in contrast to everything else that's been created, all the other creatures have in no way been able to actually satisfy Adam, this incredible creation totally equal, made of the very same substance, totally fit for him, was created, namely Eve, namely woman. And look at Adam's reaction. He says, at last, yes, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It's joy. It is joy because this lifesaver has been created. This wonderful lifesaver. So I want to say, I want to say, guys, listen, I believe from Scripture we can easily conclude that equality does not mean sameness. That we can be equal and yet different. And complementarity is actually a wonderful God-given thing. The reality is I would be naive if I tried to pretend that Josie and I were exactly the same. It is just hilariously obvious that we're not. I remember going to South Africa two months ago. I was away for nine days, desperately missing Josie all the time. I remember I got back and whilst I'd been away, Josie had had Joe Warnock stay there with her. Um... And I remember after a few hours of just relaxing on the sofa, I was like, wow, you really must be grateful to have me back. <laughs> you must have missed me terribly. And Josie was like, well, yes, yeah, yes, yes, of course. It's just strange, though. I just didn't realize having a woman here, kind of, it's a bit of a different odor when you're around. A bit of, it's a bit of a different feel. Some shoes and the socks everywhere and messy suddenly. Suddenly it's messy within hours. Joe was here just clean and 
fresh and organized and just, you know, understand each other. It's just a woman thing. I was like, thanks, love. Been away for nine days, heartbroken. But it's kind of true, to be honest with you. You know, the reality is the differences in me and Joe are wonderful. And they go on and on. You know, the reality is I'm an old stinge bag, like a lot of men. When it comes to birthdays, I don't know too many men, apart from Johnny Farnham, of course, who's very kind, who buy other men proper presents. Gustav does as well, actually. But anyway, my point is falling apart. <laughs> what I'm saying is, it's my birthday last week, and I'm looking out, and all these people go, I bought you something. But often men are like, maybe you'll get a card. Whereas Josie will just like, you know, forget the, forget the, the expense, she'll just go for it. So often women are so relational. They, stay, they highly value that. I could give you many examples. What I'm saying is the reality is I do believe God has made man and woman different and yet beautifully equal before God. And the, the, all, the arguments do go on and on. In fact, I just want to recommend an amazing book uh, called The Catchy Title of Evangelical Feminism and Biblical Truth, An Analysis of 118 Disputed Questions. <laughs> I said that quite well, actually. Wayne Grudem. This is just... This really is worth its weight in gold. I really would say... Apart from giving money to the building fund, you need to give your money to this. <laughs> buy it, buy it, share it. It's brilliant. It is so balanced. Okay, it's not just some guy ranting away. He really is amazing in, in the way he deals with this. So I, I want to I say, from those four arguments alone, and there are many others that he brings, brings out to life in those first two chapters, I think actually we, it's, it's reasonable to believe that there are different, role, different of roles and responsibilities with men and women in marriage even though that's culturally very, very counter to our culture. But I want to finish today by actually, as it were, looking at two final observations very briefly that we find not here in Genesis 2, but actually in the New Testament, again from the Apostle Paul. And the first one is this, is what I've called the mystery, marriage as representing Christ and the church. In the book of Ephesians chapter 5, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. And this mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers, hear this, to Christ and the church. Did I mishear that? You're saying that the the marriage between a man and a woman represents and refers to Christ and the church. If you are a Christian here and you're married, whether you know it or not, your marriage actually has always been designed to be not just primarily about you loving each other, but actually about pointing to a greater and more incredible relationship than even your marriage itself. It's always been designed to refer, to point us to the relationship between Christ and his church. So even with Adam and Eve, although they didn't realize it at the time when they were created, is that their relationship actually always represented something between Christ and the church. And we have to ask ourselves the question, are the roles between Christ and the church, identical. They're not, are they? Christ is our leader. He is, he is the head of us as a church. Ephesians 5.23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. Christ is the leader of the church. The church is the lead. This relationship between Christ and the church is not culturally, culturally variable. It is eternal. And therefore, what we're saying is, if we reject the biblical pattern for marriage between male and female, in some way we are actually rejecting the very focus and the very picture that Paul used to describe Christ and his church. And that's a big deal. And I want to say, before you all get angry at me and throw rocks and bricks, I want to say this. Listen, 
How did Christ lead his church? How does he do it? What does it mean for him to lead the church? It goes on in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love. Say the word love. All the men just say love. Love. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did he love her? He gave himself up for her. Wah, wah. That suddenly changes it a bit, doesn't it? I'm called to lead you, my love. How does it mean to lead? It means that you give yourself up for her. I don't know, if you're a man here and you're a Christian, you're married, I hope you're feeling terrified. <laughs> because that is the most awesome, scary, mind-boggling thing I could ever imagine. I have got to in some way emulate the sacrifice of Christ towards his church, towards his bride in my marriage. It is not about dominating or being uh, domineering or bullying. As we've already ascertained, it is about sacrificial loving. There is authority there, but only if Christ is my head. As soon as, the Christ, as, soon as in a marriage relationship, Christ is not the head of the, of the wife, then wives, you have reason actually to ask questions. Because the condition of this is that Christ is my head. And that I lead in such a way that Josie goes, I willingly, even though she is the most strongest woman I've ever met in my life, that she says, actually, I see you are a humble man after God's heart. And actually, I willingly, I want to I follow you. I want to compliment you. I want us to be together a team. And so our Christian marriage needs to represent Christ in the church. But finally, there is one even greater, more glorious representation that we see in Scripture. And in fact, it's a parallel with the Trinity itself. Because we find in 1 Corinthians 11 this incredible truth. It's that Paul says, I want you to understand the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. That's the Father. What he's saying here is, listen, is that there has always been in existence a relationship of submission and authority, of leadership and being led in the Godhead itself. That the head of Christ is the Father. Grudem says this, he says, Just as the Father and the Son are equal in deity and equal in all their attributes, but different in role, so husband and wife are equal in personhood and value, but they are different in the roles that God has given them. Just as God the Son is eternally subject to the authority of the Father, so God has planned that wives be subject to the authority of their husbands as long as their husbands are led by Christ. And when we actually stand and suddenly notice this, we suddenly, for example, in the Gospel of John, particularly, see again and again and again that our wonderful Jesus, the leader of this church, the thing he's bothered about more than anything is, what is my Father doing? John 4, said, Jesus says these incredible words. He says, I can do nothing of my own accord. This is God on earth. I can do nothing of my own accord, but only what I see the Father doing. That is submission of a, of, a, of a type and a scale I can't even comprehend. I mean, you are never going to find Josie saying, I can do nothing of my own accord, but only what I see Tom doing. You know, I mean, guys, Jesus would say, you, you think the difference in equality issue is a big deal in your marriage? You have no idea. I gloriously, I'm so secure in my godness, I'm sure Jesus would say, that I willingly, gloriously submit to my Father because he's always for me. He's always lovingly pouring his heart out for me. He's mad about me. He wants the best for me. Why on earth wouldn't I want to be led by him? He's amazing. It's incredible. And suddenly we see in Scripture all the way through again and again and again that there is, there is a difference in role between the Father and the Son. 
They are not, equality does not mean sameness for them. In John 1.3, for example, it tells us the Father created all things through the Son. Okay? All things were created through the Son. But 1 Corinthians 8.6 says, There is one God, the Father, from whom all things were created. Follow me? So everything's created by the Father, from the Father, but through the Son. You never find that reversed. There is a difference in role. All things are from the Father, but through the Son. We find, for example, in Romans 8.34, that the Son is seated at the right hand of the Father. You never find that reversed. There is a difference in role between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and yet they are totally, gloriously equal. Isn't that amazing? Do you find that amazing? Jesus was so strong, so strong, he gloriously, gloriously submitted with total abandon and passion because he knew the one leading him was actually worthy of it. This is awesome. And so as we finish, the idea of headship and leadership in marriage, it did not begin in recent years as a result of the 1960s and feminism. It didn't start even with the writings of the Apostle Paul in the first century. It didn't even start in Genesis chapter 2. Hear this. The idea of headship and submission, of leadership and being led, existed before creation began. In that sense, it never began. Because it has always, exi- it has always existed in the eternal nature of the Godhead itself. That's amazing, isn't it? Come on, that's amazing. Isn't it amazing? Do you get it? When I got it, I was like, no way! That's amazing! Maybe you've all just heard it before. I don't know. I find that mind-blowing. I find that releasing. Guys, our lives. Habakkuk says, the glory of the Lord is going to fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. A part of that is going to be when Christ returns and everyone goes, I can see Jesus, he's the boss. I see it. But before that time, part of it is the commission of the church, that through our very lives, we should live radically different lives, that people go, whoa, that's really, that's a bit weird, but that kind of tells me something. That means that you're living not just just like us, but actually you're living for someone different. The way that the glory of God fills this earth is actually through marriages, as an example, being led in a radically different way, and yet demonstrating that it works, because it's God's plan. And that puts a massive onus, a massive onus on the man, to be massively humble, massively given to God. And for the woman, I know it's a massive challenge as well, so I'm told, I'm sure it would be. Absolutely. Married to me, just poor old Josie. Guys, as we finish, I just want to say, this is a huge issue. This is a huge issue, and I've had to whistle through it very quickly. But I want to say that I believe, actually, the age in which we're living, these kind of fundamental truths, we have to ask ourselves, are we going to genuinely allow Scripture to shape our thinking, even when it feels so different? And I'm sure many of you, particularly ladies, can be just hearing the voice of your friends at university or in the workplace or whatever your family's thinking, are you really going to buy this? I want to say humbly, I hope this has just served you in starting the ball rolling. Buy this book, borrow it, go to scripture, pray it through. I believe, really do believe that actually this is not something negative, but a wonderful, wonderful thing that demonstrates the glory of God. Can we finish in prayer? Lord, we, we thank you. You are mighty to save. We thank you, God, in in these days, Lord God, that you are about a mighty work in this nation. Lord, we thank you that as your church, you call us to be those that allow our lives to be shaped by Scripture, even when it feels hard and difficult and our minds to be stretched. Lord, I pray for everyone here.
married, single, whatever. Lord, I pray now, let the peace of your heavenly spirit just come now, even across this room. Lord, I pray it now. I pray for hearts to be filled with peace. I pray for minds to be stilled. I pray, Lord God, let your grace fall on us as a church. As we finish now, Lord, as we go about this week, Lord, would you send us out as an army, an army who live radically different values because your word is a radical book. Lord, a radical book. Lord, help us, Lord, on this issue and so many others, Lord God, to lead the way with grace and humility and yet confidence. Lord, we love you. We love your word. We believe it's perfect. And Lord God, we just say this week in our cell groups and in every other meeting, Lord, be with us in Jesus' awesome name. Almost finished there. I just want to say one last thing. Oh.